0: Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, a podcast where we talk about books that are about archaeology but are accessible to anyone. I'm Tristan Herrenstein, your host, and along with me, as always, is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Howdy, howdy. And so today, we are finishing up the second half of Captain Kidd's Lost Ship, The Wreck of the Cata Merchant. So, we actually, uh, our tagline says, we are doing books that are accessible to anyone. However, we have found that this is actually not as accessible as we were hoping for. And as Barbara and I were both reading this, we were uh, texting back and forth, like, this is really like a dissertation. And it turns out this is a dissertation. So as far as what we want to be reading for this kind of podcast, this is not quite it, but we're going to go ahead and finish it up and talk about this and even if it's not accessible to uh, other people to read hopefully us talking about it can make it a little more accessible
1: yeah and i think we can as we did with our previous episode continue to kind of guide you on what is important to read what you can kind of skim over or pass over completely in order to make this book more enjoyable for the layman yeah non-archaeologists
0: right uh, i also want to you know talk briefly about the for the dissertation, because we are talking about this as a book, but dissertations themselves they have a value in communication and in reporting research, but they are not necessarily meant to be consuming the way we are consuming it. Um, so we are going to be talking about this as a book, but we will. I uh, want to acknowledge now, and we'll be acknowledging throughout. I think that uh, there is value in that, and that this is a something you do in a dissertation, but it's not necessarily something fun to read.
1: It had its fun points. Certainly did,
0: yes. (laughs) But yeah, but being fun to read isn't its main point either. It's not its its intent or its goal. True, very true. Picking up where we left off with chapter four, we are actually talking about the archaeological site of the Cata Merchant this time. So the ship was discovered off uh, Catalina Island, and it was actually found by a snorkeler uh, who was not an archaeologist and was actually out there. And just snorkeling around and found the shipwreck. And I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that that happens pretty regularly. um, And that's why, well, one of the reasons why public archaeology is so important. Because it it allows for that line of communication between members of the public, whether it be snorkelers, hikers, hunters, whatever, and archaeologists to remain open so that we can make sure these sites are protected and documented it appropriately.
0: Mm-hmm. And thanks to this person, that's what has happened with this one. Almost didn't though, because so archaeologists received requests to investigate in 2007. They did a series of investigations from 2007 to 2011. Initially, it was they only knew it had a few cannons on it. They actually figured out this was probably the Cata merchant, in part, I guess, thanks to do, to research done by a treasure hunting company. And as you may have picked up from other parts of this podcast, uh, boo hiss. But in this case it worked out and it was beneficial. Uh interestingly, in the Dominican Republic, let's see, it can be legal to treasure hunt and splits fines are split 50-50. They do go into this a little later about how this works. And essentially, there is a organization that oversees underwater resources and essentially can allow access for a fee as well. So that's kind of how this seems to work which is not what we like to see and we've talked about that before and probably will again but it is how it is and it's kind of what goes on around the world sometimes
1: yeah and i think it's important to mention to you that every government every jurisdiction um, has their own way of dealing with this it's not a universal one size fits all kind of thing again why public archaeology is so important mm-hmm, but right? also if you do find something, you just have to be aware of what the local laws are so that you're not breaking them.
0: Yep, that's always a good piece of advice. They did a non-invasive investigation in 2007, so that means they're basically going out and just mapping things and recording them. And then they got permits for a long-term investigation in 2008, and uh, they did a couple years of some trenches. Just to really kind of investigate what was left of the ship and what, and as we'll talk about, to confirm that it was the ship. They also there's a point of that they utilized a number of other fields like chemistry and geology, which I always tell people if you have an interest in science, archaeologists certainly use it in some way. Um, We we dip our toes into all kinds of different sciences.
1: Yeah, I did think it was a little strange how he talked about the multidisciplinary approach to the investigation of this site, but I think it's really nice that he did discuss it at all because I feel like uh, oftentimes it's left out, or especially if the book is on archaeology, they focus so much on the archaeology that they leave out a lot of other things and don't necessarily give credit to the other scientists and sciences that contributed to our understanding of the past.
0: And as we'll see, they did use some of those other specialties for the analysis of the shipwreck too.
1: Yeah. And I oh, I also want to point out, so the first half of the book that we went over in our last podcast episode was mainly about Captain Kidd, the story and his background. And you'll notice when you're reading this book that there's a very drastic shift from that narrative to more of the science and the archaeology looking at it from a more scientific perspective. So don't let that throw you off. It is like a very different thing to read,
0: right. Yeah, because the previous one was almost a narrative, and this is much less so anyway. Yeah. I'm not sure it's not entirely not it's, a mer- narrative. but It's a
1: narrative. It's just a different narrative, yeah. not having, I mean, obviously it has to do with Captain Kid because it's his ship, but it's different in that it's more about the ship and less about Captain Kid's story, I guess is the best way to put it.
0: Okay, so moving into it. So there are a number of kind of small sections in here. And I know as I was reading them, it can be a little difficult to get through them. So uh, what, I, what I'm gonna kind of do at least for what I talk is kind of summarize what are the key points that you would want to get from these sections because they're in there, but they're not easy to pick out necessarily. First and foremost is shipwreck identification. And so the first thing they have to do is actually confirm that this is the Cata merchant. Um, having some documents and it being in about the same place isn't going to be enough. They need to look at the ship, look at what it has, look at how it's built, all these other details, and confirm that yes, this is the Cata merchant. Sometimes that is easier, as I understand it. Sometimes that is harder.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's it can be easy in as such as finding a bell or a cannon or something that has the name of the ship on it. Unfortunately, they did not get that lucky. And if you'll remember nope. our conversation about the name of this ship, I feel like even if you found something with the name on it, you'd still have to do a lot of research and excavation to figure out.
0: It could be the wrong name, so Yeah. To speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there's three things they need to really look at. They need to look at uh, any metal artifacts and how they're arranged and their quality. So how they were built and all that. Look at the ship itself and how it was made and ideally where it was made. And finally, any specifics about the whole construction and the techniques used in that. Other artifacts uh, he does note could help, but you can't necessarily count on them being preserved. So a good rule of thumb for preservation archaeology is the harder it is, the more likely it is preserved. Things like cloth usually do not last very long. Metal, stone, in, in some degrees, bone all, all last a lot longer because they're much harder materials. Uh, although I found it interesting, and I, I noted this, uh, he actually says heavier materials. And I thought that was unusual until it clarified why that is.
1: Yeah, I had never heard it put like that before.
0: So. Well, basically, the reason that's important in this context is because things have a tendency to float away if they're not heavy enough. And i like, oh, of course, as a terrestrial archaeologist, that is not a primary concern. So I thought that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, he does a really good job. Um, Speaking about the uh, natural processes that can. Very
0: important, yeah.
1: You know, mess, not necessarily mess up the shipwreck, but disturb the shipwreck. It's not all like in terrestrial, usually it's some kind of form of human activity. I mean, we have erosion and things like that, but I feel like with an underwater site, especially one that is pretty close to being near the coast, you get a lot of wave action and things like that, that can bring, I was going to say, softer, lighter objects to the um, beach.
0: Mm -hmm. And then we move into field methods. He talks about why we don't always excavate everything, which I thought this was great because that is one question we get a lot. That's not always an easy answer, but essentially it comes down to we are doing a destructive science. You'll never, ever, no one will ever, ever get to uh, excavate this site again. so it's to everyone's best interest to come up with some questions we want to answer and then only excavate as much as we think we need need to to answer those questions and then leave as much as if possible. With the exception that sometimes the site is going to be destroyed for construction purposes and then that's a different matter and a different kind of archaeology as well.
1: Well, and I think he even brings up the point about funding And bringing these sites up, especially underwater sites that require a lot of preservation, they're very costly. And we're both here in Florida. And every time there's a hurricane, there's shipwrecks that get uncovered or recovered, as it were. And uh, we always get calls, people wanting us to take the shipwreck and preserve it. And I get that. I understand that but we have to understand that archeology span is not just about the thing. It's Mm -hmm. about the story it tells. So we need a research question. And a lot of times it's best just to let either mother nature recover the shipwreck, recover as and put sand, deposit sand on top of it, or um, cover it ourselves. Until a good research question comes along that we can answer, because it's really expensive to try and preserve these things, and there's so many issues that go along with it. This is an entire ship, you know, (laughs) it's a lot,
0: and it's years of work that has to go into preserving them, yeah, for sure. And by and large, they've been around for 300 years, 2000 years, they're not gonna go anywhere. There are some exceptions to that, but by and large, you can usually just kind of leave things alone, and they'll be there for a long, long time still.
1: And it's not to say that we won't document them. We can go out there, document them, measure them, photograph them, do 3D modeling of them and things like that, that also are a form of preservation, but we don't necessarily have to take the entire thing out of the ground in order to preserve it.
0: And another thing that, reason why we don't excavate the whole thing sometimes and becomes relevant for this shipwreck in particular is uh, for pur- tourism purposes. Mm-hmm. And if you excavate the whole thing and there's no shipwreck anymore, there is no tourism opportunities for that shipwreck and no benefit to the local communities and that kind of thing. So there is some value there too. So moving into the excavations themselves, they, like I said, they started in 2007 with a what they call a non-disturbance survey, which means they're just kind of scouting the area out and doing some mapping and taking some photos and just kind of figuring out what is even there before they, they dive in and start doing some of the destructive research we mentioned. Also, archival research is a part of that usually. So you, you do your archival research before you, you break ground. You wanna make sure you have as best army as you can be before you start to get in there. 2008 to 2009, they did, uh, it looks like two trenches. And so these trenches were to try and find the ship hole because finding the hole that's uh, H-U-L-L in case it's not coming through very clearly. The the body of the ship is really important for identifying it, especially in this case, but in for any ship as far as I understand.
1: Yeah, that's my understanding, too. It gives you the type of ship it was, the length, all sorts of things that can coincide with the archival research to let you know whether or not you're looking at the ship you think you are looking at.
0: Right, because there's a lot of them around, especially in the Caribbean area. Yeah. Uh, So a bit on the couple, on the techniques they were using, they had to use chisels to remove the coral. That was interesting to me that it would have grown over that quickly for some reason. I just don't quite, didn't quite picture that. And then they're also using hand fanning and what's defined as an airlift. But this is just a a dredger, basically.
1: That confused me.
0: Right, me too. I've always seen it referred to as dredging, not airlifting. Yeah. So essentially picture a shop vac underwater that dumps out into a a barge up above and then they filter it through a screen and they can see all the little stuff that they might have missed in the dirt itself. And the hand fanning is just to kind of move stuff around using the water and that uh, stirs up the sediment and then the dredge will suck it up and take it away. Yeah. How I understand it anyway.
1: Shovels and trowels don't work as well underwater. (laughs) Not near as well, no.
0: So they got a lot of data from this. Uh, in their north-south trench, they recovered a cannon. Uh, there are quite a few cannons, to be clear, but th- they did recover one of it for testing. They said they had a chisel out of bedrock. Well, I had. A, they called it bedrock. I think they must mean coral. What do you think?
1: I mean, um, I'm wondering if it's, like, substrate, like, underneath the ocean floor, Is like the loose sand.
0: Compacting that quickly, that intensely, it just kind of surprised me. I don't... I don't know my underwater processes all that well. But.
1: Um, I don't know. Any underwater site I've been on has been off the coast of Florida, and I've never seen them use chisels. Mm-hmm. So I don't really understand. I mean, coral grows, you know, above the surface on something, whether it be more coral or rock, or in this case, a shipwreck, right? But I could see possibly maybe just hard pan type dirt yeah. or something. Because
0: to me, bedrock means ancient ancient earth crust type thing
1: yeah me being a floridian i always think limestone (laughs) yeah
0: yeah and that's true which is
1: ancient coral
0: right and that's what i've been you know throughout the nation the country as far as i'm aware of of us was where we work i've always referred to it as bedrock when you're at literal stone there is no possible way a human could have been below this yeah so yeah, I'm not quite clear on that one, but I guess it doesn't matter too much. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on it. And so the cannon is conserved.
1: Were you surprised at how many cannons were on the ship?
0: Uh, I think because of the re- reading the history, I think I was not as surprised kind of how this came about. I was like, yeah, he did. I think he did have a lot or claimed he had a lot.
1: Yeah, I guess it just didn't sink into me when there's an illustration in the book yeah. uh, that shows the cannons kind of scattered about, and it I was just like, wow, and that's these, a
0: lot. These were more cannons than one ship would use, as yeah. I understood it, too. Yeah. So they had a bunch of cannons they'd taken from the other ships, and then when he led his mutinous crew, essentially, <laughs> he loaded up anything he still had, and I guess he had a whole bunch of cannons.
1: Yeah, there's quite a few.
0: Yes. So around the cannons, they found spikes and nails and timber fragments. All these underwent conservation or analysis. And then their east west trench they did in 2009 and they found a bit of ship hole and ballast. And so ballast, if you're not aware, is just literally, usually stone that is used to hold the ship underwater. Because if it's too high in the water, it's just going to tip over. So they need to have some ballast in there to keep it lower sometimes the if they were full of cargo they didn't need much ballast but if they unloaded a bunch of cargo then you're going to need a bunch more ballast so ballast is a good thing to find it's it's something you expect to find but also you can sometimes trace where it comes from although that gets complicated and then in 2011 indiana university and east carolina university collaborated and found some more ship hull Uh, i noted some he said there's a lot of data, but there isn't really discussion of what that data was at this point. Anyway,
1: there were some points in this book where he would do something like that, where he would say we found this stuff, but he wouldn't go into detail on what the stuff is. And then other times he would find something that was interesting, but I felt like he sometimes maybe elaborated on it a little too much. I don't know.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll kind of come across those and talk about them, I think, as they come. So that's all I have for that field methods part. Moving on to site formation, if you're following along in the book, we're at about page 106 right now. So site formation essentially boils down to, we need to know what happened to the ship after it was sunk to try and figure out what what actually uh, it was like before it was sunk. So a lot of things happen to a site after they're abandoned or deposited and we, you can't always tell, you need to try and tell what is happening so that you don't misinterpret something as a natural thing, as this is the way they, they did things. I'm trying to think of an example.
1: Well, like teredo worms, um, I've had people come to me at when we're at festivals and things and they'll bring me, there's also a worm I think that eats into like shell. And they're going after the mollusk inside the shell. But people will come to me and say, Hey, I found this shell and it has a perfectly drilled hole in it. It must be man made. Well, there's a type of worm that exists off the coast of Florida that does drill these perfectly little circular holes through shell, get the mollusk. It's not man made. So, this is where that multidisciplinary thing comes into play, knowing a little bit about the environment that you're working in. And Teredo worms were these worms that would essentially eat the wood from the hull of the ship. And I've heard people, you know, say, oh, this, you know, the ship must have had a leak and, you know, all sorts of things that if you didn't know about this specific worm, you could come up with a completely different theory (laughs) of what happened to the ship. I found his uh, discussion on the extracting filters and the scrambling devices to be interesting, but a lot when he was talking about what creates a site and what messes up the site. And it was interesting to put it that way, but I also thought it kind of, it was very dry.
0: Yeah, there was some good stuff in there that I found very interesting in particular, like the the ship in this case uh, by record was on fire and then it probably came free of its mooring at one point and, and it floated a bit also as it was sinking, You know, that's something that takes time and it's moving. Things float away. Sometimes, like the Titanic, it'll split in half, Right. you know, and then you have two halves. And as they go down, they're going to be potentially quite a ways away from each other. So all these factors into how these things are formed are important to remember. And in this case, because uh, we found, oh, we'll talk about it, but because we think it, it moved, the smaller, lighter artifacts were are probably scattered kind of along the path rather than with the um, bulk of the shipwreck.
1: Well, and it's also important. I remember he mentions that a good portion of the items that would have been left by Kid would have been removed before it was set on fire.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Um. So this is like a point that I wanted to drive home is just there's a difference between a ship that is wrecked on say a coral reef during a hurricane versus a ship that is scuttled. Yeah. Um and also even
0: looted by a shady merchant first. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> in this case. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um so, you know, there's different scenarios that would cause different types of items to be left on the ship before wrecked and during the wreck.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And so there are, are three levels of association, so things that are attached to the, to the ship are very clearly part of the ship. Things that are detached from the ship And then there are things that are mixed in with other deposits. And these are very similar to what we see in in terrestrial archaeology as well. Um, Some things are very obviously associated with each other, and then uh, it can get mixed in with other time periods and such, and become more complicated. So, looking at the shipwreck itself, it is in fairly shallow water, close to a rocky shore, which uh, he suspects is why the treasure hunters never found it, because it was just not a very I think, accessible place to look is how I understand that. There is no upper deck. So the the top part of the ship is entirely gone. We only have the bottom left. Uh, So the total, there is a 26 cannons and they are arranged as cargo. So essentially they are in stacks and alternating which direction they're facing. So one's one way, the other is pointing the exact opposite way. So that way they'll fit closer together underneath the cannons are there's three large anchors and a bunch of they call call it encrusted magnetic ferrous feature which just means it's a lot of metal stuff right a lot yeah. of iron <laughs> um, but they could it was so much stuff built up and so much rust they couldn't tell exactly what it was and i think there's a good argument for it probably didn't matter because it's probably uh scrap metal
1: Yep, it was, I would assume it's something he's taken off of other ships and he plans on trying to make money off of something. Yes,
0: and, and he, we mean kid. In yes, this sorry, case. kid. Yes, yes, yeah. They did come back in 2017. This made me happy to do some photogrammetry. And so, photogrammetry is essentially using a whole bunch of pictures and then plug it into a program to make a 3D model. And for a lot of archeology, span but especially underwater archeology, span this is a pretty huge game changer because the model is fairly quick and easy to do. You can make some excellent maps out of it. Essentially when archeologists map a site, depending on accessibility of the site, it can take 10 years to get the full site mapped. And over 10 years, you have different people doing it and you're going to introduce a lot of potential for inaccuracies. So if you can do it all in one go, you're in pretty good shape.
1: And especially with something that's in an environment, like an underwater environment, it it could change almost daily if you really think about it. So to be able to use photogrammetry and get it all done at once. It's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> and then the nice thing about this too, is they can come back in 10 years and do another round of photogrammetry and see how much it's changed. If it's stable or if it's not, if cannons have disappeared, they'll be able to see that. So that's that's also kind of the benefit of it. There's also the public accessibility of that model because now you people don't even have to dive to, to experience a shipwreck. They can look at the 3D model of it and experience it that way too. Let's see, kids goods were probably moved by Bolton? Did I say Bolton before? I think I said the right name.
1: You just said Shady Merchant before. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Bolton the Shady Merchant. We're probably removed. So there is kind of a gap in the layout of the cannons. So cannons are on either end of the ship basically and there's a gap in the middle and they're hypothesizing that that is where the other goods like sugar were located and Bolton would have absconded with those. And I like the, the reasoning behind why the cannons are on the either end. Essentially, they're hard to move around. So they are placed directly under the hatches for, where there's easier access. And the things that are easier to move around get stuck between them. And that, that seemed like very good reasoning. There might also be a balancing issue if you put all your cannons on one end, but either way that explains why they're not all in the middle essentially in this case. And because they're heavy, that's also probably why Bolton didn't take them. There is a, a distinct lack of any glassware or small artifacts. Like we said, uh, it was probably scattered. The top deck burned away or fell away at some point, And all those little things were probably swept away while that was happening and probably soon after as well. He does su- suggest that a more detailed survey might reveal some of these, but I think that's potentially a pretty long shot.
1: I think at this rate and where it's located.
0: Was this a part of this shipwreck or was this glassware from any other shipwreck over the last 400 yeah. years, or even just a ship sailing by dumping stuff? It's hard to say. Those are the towns, the very busy towns. There's all the fisher uh, activity that was going on. So I think that it would probably be a pretty long shot, but it would be cool if someone decided they want to do it and seeing what happened for sure.
1: Yeah, there might be a way to extrapolate what belongs where based on the type of artifacts you find. Um, if anybody ever does it, I didn't know about it. Cause Same. now I'm kind of invested in the shipwreck. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So now we move on to uh, the features and trying to use those features to determine the origin of the vessel and make sure that yes, this is the Cata merchant. So first up we have the the ferrous artifacts and ferrous again just means iron. There are anchors like we said underneath the cannons and so they hypothesized that the anchors were actually uh, intended as scrap because if you need to use the anchor and they're under a bunch of cannons, that's not a good way of doing that. So they're thinking that there's actually scrap and anchors underneath the cannons, which again makes a lot of sense because who cares if the scrap iron gets a little wet, but if cannons get wet, you're, you can't use them anymore.
1: I thought it was interesting, too, because when we think of shipwrecks, we always, or people always think of treasure, right? Especially yeah. when it comes to piracy. But here was this guy going out and getting scrap metal. right?
0: Well, <laughs> that know? was not what he probably wanted to be bringing back. He right, but didn't. it was
1: just, it, it was interesting to me, and I think it's really good to point out because... What we find as archaeologists quite often is not that really cool buried treasure, but it's things that are of a more everyday nature that can still tell us a really cool story about the shipwreck or the archaeological site.
0: Of the cannons, the cannons were all of very different sizes, though he did note that the three biggest ones were from a, I, I forget exactly their reasoning, but they they seem to think that it was very likely they were actually taken from the Adventure Galley, probably because that was intended as a combat ship would have had some larger cannons with it. Um, but none of them had any signs that they were deployed. So they were definitely stacked there. Then we move on to the analysis of the wood materials. And so they sent them to three different labs to all test out the wood and see what they thought. And again, we talked about this before, but there is value in redundancy information. So if all three labs came back with different wood, then you've got a problem. But if they all come back and agree, as in this case they did, then you have a pretty good case for, yes, this is Teak as this was. And this is probably their, I think the strongest argument they have that this is definitely the Kata merchant because Teak comes from Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, and India, and it was heavily used as a shipbuilding material.
1: Yeah, this to me, I would agree with you. It was the strongest evidence. For some of the other things when I was reading through it, the evidence was there, like it was quite likely, but it wasn't as definitive to me as the teak was.
0: Yeah. And so so essentially, though, they're saying that at this time period, the idea that a vessel from the Indian Ocean would be all the way out in the Caribbean uh, Ocean is really really rare, and I think they have a strong case on that. Let's see. They they ana- analyzed the ballast stone. They said they did a small sample, which uh, that could be, you know, anywhere from a rock or two, or it could be ten of the two hundred rocks. For all I know, I'm a little unclear on exactly what that is. But they analyzed the ballast stone because you can look at the chemical analysis of these stones often and figure out where exactly the stones came from. And so the stones were all were all basalt and they think that they probably came from northwest India. However, I don't think that on its own, at least, this is particularly strong evidence. The fact that it's compounded with other things, I thought it was okay, but what ships would do is they would carry basalt to a o- place. They'd take on a bunch of cargo and dump it. Another ship would come along and pick up or and do the inverse. Yeah. And then take just take rocks out of the water. So these things moved around a lot. But the fact that they were all... Basalt or were they all basalt?
1: I think a large, at least a large portion of them were. But yeah, that was my issue with the ballast too. It was, it's my understanding that as you know, they're moving around, they kind of unloaded and maybe reloaded on a different ship and the ballast just kind of got mixed and commingled mm-hmm. amongst other ballast potentially. And they're just, to me, you know it's not a permanent part of the ship. It's more of a mobile part of the ship. Um, so I wouldn't,
0: it's a little like using, uh, in terrestrial sites, using ceramics to date a family home, especially when they're fancy ceramics, because people tend to keep those things as heirlooms and pass them down for generation to generation. So it's a little similar in that it's not always the most reliable thing. It can be used as a, maybe this aids what we think is going on, but it's, it's a little something you have to be careful with.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, the thing about archaeology or any science really is you're gathering information from different piece- places and you're piecing it together. So with the other information that he gathered, then yeah, it's an important talking point. But in and of itself, it's a little, little mm-hmm. less concrete.
0: So it's a good thing that's not all they've got.
1: Right. So
0: we move on to the keel now. And I actually like this description of what a keel is. I knew what it was, but I wasn't sure how to describe it. And he describes it as the backbone of the hole. That's a good way of putting that. And so I know the keel can be important because it can give a good indication of the shape and the size of the hole. And that can tell you a lot about where it came from in this case, although I didn't find any indication that that's what they got from it. Uh, It was broken into two sections. And then I had to note that there's a whole bunch of detail and signs of missing parts that it didn't mean a whole lot to me and didn't seem to necessarily contribute to the overall goal in this case
1: there were a lot of boat and ship terms that mm-hmm. i had yeah. to google yeah um and i you know a lot of them i had heard before but i didn't really ever pay much attention to what exactly they meant so it was a little bit of a stop and go hit you google you
0: didn't have to talk about them in a podcast
1: exactly <laughs> right yeah so just I mean, just learning what they were. if you're a shipbuilder or you're interested in boat building at all, you would probably have a much easier time with this than I did. I was constantly grabbing my phone googling terms quickly just so I could have a little bit more understanding. So I learned a lot. Yep. For I learned sure. a lot about boats
0: and uh, with the keel, it's important to point out that this is a a kind of artifact of a dissertation or thesis type project, because if this was a book they probably would cut this very short or not even include it, just because it doesn't add to the book. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is to record the site and what they did at the site. So it is, it's serving a purpose. And I just kind of want to point that out as, as one of the ways that this differs from the actual, um, from the books we are aiming to read in this podcast. So fi- next we move on to planking and frames. And this is where a lot of those terms came in that I had to look up. So we talk about strakes and futtocks, and scarves. I, I have notes on them. I don't know if we need to go over what all of these things were, but essentially these are parts of the hole. Yeah. Is what it comes down to. You I mean, feel free to look them up if you want, but they're all different parts of the hole. And by identifying those parts of the hole, they can kind of get a lot of idea of uh, shape. Um, in this case, I didn't know they did this. They had kind of a limestone-like planking, uh, coating on the planks.
1: I didn't know about that either. And I don't know if that's something that's common it, I've never heard of it before
0: to it sounded common for that
1: air for area. the area
0: but also it didn't sound like it was a totally unique thing like other parts might have done it I wonder if they did this maybe before they had the copper plating or when the copper plating wasn't a good option
1: maybe yeah to,
0: you know to keep uh, barnacles and things off the hole
1: yep Keep those Teredo worms at bay.
0: Exactly. For a while anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There were signs of iron fastenings and rabbiting and impressions in the rust. So they they certainly had those iron fastenings. Uh, And then we move on to talking about rabbiting, which rabbiting is a specific way of binding two planks together. This is something, I guess, the Indian shipbuilders were known for doing on basically all of their planks. And so it's kind of a potentially a really big deal. However, they only found, let's see, uncovered section of the hole demonstrated what could possibly be a rabbited scene. And so the whole, this rabbiting makes this thing seem like it's from India. I wasn't sure I fully bought into that because they, it was very clear that Europeans did some rabbiting too. And if you're basing that off of one seam, and then if you're not even really sure, I, I had some problems with this one.
1: Yeah, I it's interesting. It's worth noting, but I don't know that it's worth putting as much stock into it as it seems like the author is trying to.
0: Well, and it could potentially be we are not specialized in this. It could be the location of the rabbiting. You know, Europeans would not have done it here, but it wasn't clearly laid out in the book or, or the thesis in this case. And so I yeah, I didn't quite buy this. Also the coding is they called it what I'm gonna say is chuna, which they also think was from India. However, they concluded this without actually testing the material. And they I think they explicitly say that.
1: Yeah, they do, which I, I mean you've already done all this analysis on all these different types of material. Yeah. And then you're like you assume that something's from somewhere without Well
0: and I, I get something could have happened that it didn't it wasn't something to like a hindsight thing where oh we should have really done that, but to conclude that yes this is what it was even though we didn't test it I again I I have a little trouble with understanding why why we did that. So to kind of move on to the conclusion for this chapter essentially it comes down to uh, the evidence is not entirely conclusive but very strong that this is a Kata merchant, and I agree that there's a lot of good indication this is a to merchant but like we were kind of saying i'm not sure it's as quite as strong as the author is uh, suggesting in this case
1: yeah i would say it's likely the Uh, to
0: merchant i don't even say it's very likely yeah like i think saying it's cata merchant interpreting as such it's a fair fair way of doing that but a lot of this the evidence that's supposed to contribute to that i'm not sure i was enthusiastic about i guess
1: which i mean in reality That's probably true of a lot of shipwrecks, unless you find something that says this was the ship. (laughs) That's
0: true for many, many things in archaeology.
1: Yeah. So that doesn't the fact that we're questioning that at all is does not mean that the archaeologist and the author did a poor job or anything like that. It doesn't mean there's anything
0: necessarily wrong here. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And while another thing to point out too is that the analysis of the shipwreck and such may seem kind of sparse to you. And sometimes that's just what we have to work with. And I think that was probably the case here because they didn't want to disturb it too much. They had a very specific question they were trying to deal with and there wasn't a lot of those small artifacts that they could analyze. I think in this case, they're they're just working with what they have. And I think that is perfectly fine, you know, but it, it does a little bit jarring when you compare that to the in-depth history analysis of of Captain Kidd's story and everything. And as, and that, again, that's not a criticism. It's just uh, kind of stood out to me.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree. There was a definite shift. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's uh, that is really not unusual for us to have to work with what seems like a very small collection of artifacts sometimes.
1: Yep, unfortunately, we as archaeologists cannot pick what is available as far as-
0: What survives. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> like we yep. have to work with what is there. So
0: next, we move on to chapter five. And while Barbara and I are not necessarily fully versed in underwater archeology, span now we're moving on to the public interpretation and how it contributes to the, uh, the nearby communities. And so we have a lot of passion about this subject. So we're gonna have fun with this one, I think. We start with the first part of the question is, do we make this a public site or we just try and preserve it? and so the, what we do with a number of other sites is kind of look at different factors. Are there lots of little artifacts that could easily be picked up and carried away? Um, that might be a good case for keeping it safer or covering it back up. Sometimes the site is so remote that no one can get to it so it really doesn't matter. And then some for a, a whole bunch of other reasons are good candidates for public access and that is the case with the Cata Merchant. So We actually have very few small artifacts. It's in relatively shallow water, so pretty good accessible. There is coral protecting the hole, which just makes it harder to mess with all that. And finally, we have a large community and a tourist industry right nearby, so kind of a good location for that. And the whole idea of it being looted is less likely, especially if they can get some monitoring and stuff in place like they are going to do.
1: Yeah, think he does a good job of discussing how even just so oftentimes, especially with archeological sites that are remote or even underwater, it's there can be the issue of looting because you're underwater. It's harder to police that. Right. But he has a good discussion on how the community kind of can get behind policing it themselves. And I think mm-hmm. that happens a lot with archaeological sites, especially, I mean, we talk about this with other types of sites where we encourage, vi- encourage visitation because it's harder for sketchy things to happen when there's people with good intentions right. at the site.
0: And there is a tendency to view things in the ocean or frankly, nature and archaeological sites in both of those contexts as infinite resources. And we actually have seen a shift, I guess, even here in Florida, where uh, dive instructors and people taking people out to dive will tell them you are not going to bring anything up with you because they know that if people do that enough, they're not going to have a job anymore.
1: I dive and I've gone on dives offshore where the captain and the dive master pretty much say you will be left out in the ocean if you try to bring stuff to the surface. So, um good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and looking at them, I'm like, oh, I don't think, I, I think he might leave you in the ocean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't test it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so we have three issues with turning this into a public site. One is finding the most appropriate management for the marine resources in the area. Trying to figure out how to work in community, national government, and international agencies all in so they can work together and work to preserve these sites and utilize these sites effectively and sustainably. And finally, working to find compromise when meeting conservation goals. Goodness.
1: And this chapter is really interesting if you are into this kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) If you like discussions about politics and leadership and, you know, trying to solve a very complex issue, this would be an interesting chapter for you but otherwise i feel like the reader can kind of just skim to get the basic idea
0: i feel like if you like those things, you're going to find a lot of shortcomings in this chapter though okay, because that's a fair I felt point. like I needed a lot of a lot more explanation about how things were done and how what reactions were like, and we'll talk about this. But I
1: feel like this chapter honestly could be a book in and of itself it should
0: it should almost be you know this the, honestly
1: big. that could have been a thesis or yeah. a dissertation in and of itself hundred percent yeah,
0: yeah. We start off with looking at the legal framework of underwater cultural heritage, and I know you kind of took a deep dive on some of this, Barbara.
1: Yeah, so this got me interested in two issues we have here in Florida with treasure hunting. There are laws that protect ships, and it gets very, very, very detailed, and I don't want to dive too deep because we might lose listeners, But in Florida, we have laws that protect shipwrecks. And a lot of times people will come to me and ask, well, if we have laws that protect these shipwrecks, how are certain salvage companies getting contracts to go out and look at these shipwrecks? And yes, in the state of Florida, there are salvage companies that do have agreements with the state of Florida. To go out and look at specific shipwrecks they have to apply for permits they have to meet very very strict qualifications one is that they have to have an archaeologist on staff that is um, secretary of of interior qualified and it looks like maybe in some ways the issue or uh, the dominican republic tackles this issue in a very similar way they do allow some salvaging unfortunately something i've think maybe differs a little bit with the dominican republic is that they have had issues in the past where a lot of their cultural material has gone off to other countries Mm -hmm. where i think in florida most of ours ends up staying in the united states or we can reach an agreement with the other country but i think this is more of a looter type situation in the dominican republic
0: yeah it seems like it could be
1: but yeah i took a deep dive just into learning more about the shipwrecks and off the coast of Florida that, you know, do have contracts for salvaging? And it's a contentious issue in the state of Florida, I think both with the public and with professional archeologists, but it was interesting just to kind of compare and contrast what happens in the Dominican Republic versus what happens in Florida. And I mean, I have personal opinions on it, but (sighs) I will,
0: and you can probably guess these opinions. Yeah. I will not
1: go into detail, but this time, this time that's right (laughs) but if you meet me um you know at a public event or something you can ask me about it
0: yes we will tell you (laughs) so we move on then to section called shipwrecks is a common pool resource and this is a lot of stuff we've talked about about the complications of trying to interpret them and preserve them and what can harm them i liked how he broke up the different usage groups. So I thought that was interesting. So we have four different usage groups, scientific, business, community, and illegal. And even within these usage groups, you can have conflict between them. Uh, So for example, an archaeologist may want to excavate a site, whereas a, a marine biologist may want to preserve the habitat that the site is involved with. So there is potential conflict with all those two. And so it's good to identify who your stakeholders are in this kind of thing so you can get everyone to the table and try and solve any problems from the start except for the illegal one then i you know that's mostly just something how do we keep them from messing around with it
1: yeah i think he does a really good job of discussing how shipwrecks are in addition to being a cultural resource they are also a natural resource Mm -hmm. they turn into artificial reefs and when I first started working for f and I went down to the Keys and visited two very different shipwrecks. One they took us to had been looted heavily and it didn't have a lot of marine life on it. You could, it didn't have a lot of coral on it. You could tell that it was part of a man-made thing. This one was just a barge, so it was a very simplistic version of a ship it wasn't something like the cata merchant would be but then they took us to another shipwreck that had been better preserved less looted you couldn't even tell it was a shipwreck really i there was part of the mast and you could see that but for the most part it looked like a coral reef and so i think the author does a really good job discussing the natural the nature aspects of the con- you know conservation and i i tend to use conservation in terms of like preserving environment and preservation as in terms of preserving like the cultural material but i don't know if that is a standard way of doing that i don't know if everybody thinks of it that way but that's how i think of it personally those two terms anyways mm-hmm.
0: so nearby the shipwreck we have two communities so we have by which i think is Kind of close to how you pronounce it. That's how I was pronouncing it. Yeah, and we have La Romana. So Bayahibe is a small town. La La Romana, Romana, is I think the third largest city in Dominican Republic.
1: Yeah, and it's very resort touristy. Whereas I guess Bayahibe was more of a fishing village.
0: Yep. So uh, they did a lot of their income through fishing and would sell to the large cities, so like La Romana. But as those cities grew, demand grew and overfishing became a problem. Since the fishing has kind of become something that they can't sustain anymore, tourism has developed. And so Bayahe Bay, residents have shifted to working through the tourism industry. I guess fish captains are now more tour guides and scuba guides and, and that kind of thing. And there's a lot more of a souvenir selling and all that stuff. One thing that, and so we talk about tourism, and one thing that kind of bothered me with this book was I feel like tourism was only almost ever a good thing. So I'm not fully heavily trained in tourism, but I've had a a couple of classes, so I know just a little bit to be dangerous. And one of the biggest conversations in those classes were, how do we do this in a way that is not only damaging to the communities that are hosting.
1: He does mention in the book how some people consider the growth of tourism to be a form of neocolonialism, where it mainly like benefits the elite and foreigners.
0: It is mentioned, but I feel like without much discussion, it comes down the side of it's a good thing. It's kind of how I interpret it, the way it was written.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he does he does talk a little bit about how I feel like he could have gone more in depth about the inequality because he talks a little bit about like La Romana is this resort type community and then Bayahibe is this smaller fishing village and he doesn't really go into maybe as much depth as I would like about the economies of both those communities and how they relate to each other. I know he talks a little bit about how the people from Hebe will travel to La Romana to work and things like that. But, and that usually the people from Baiahebe have uh, lower level jobs, lower right. paying jobs. But <clears throat> then all of a sudden, he kind of switches gears and it's like tourism's great.
0: Yeah. And I think if you can read between the lines a little bit, you can kind of see some of the cracks in that. Still, like there's the the resorts, and the resorts are good for Bahia because people there can go and work, and the resorts like it because they've got cheap labor. And I'm like, who owns the resorts, you know? And how much do these resorts really benefit Bahia He even mentions that resorts do all they can to keep people in the resort and not going into the town. Which one of the key things is how much does the tourism benefit this town directly? Are are people actually spending money in the town, or is it something entirely contained? And we've seen that even here with some events in Florida, we've got one, one big event where people camp out and everything, but um, it's almost entirely contained. The nearby town doesn't see any people going for food or hardly any hotels. Um, there's no real benefit to that beyond the confines of that event. Seems like there is some push and pull here because the residents are trying to take advantage of that. Resorts are trying to resist that. And then they reluctantly uh, let them pay them the for the uh, access to come and sell things on the resort and then there's things like they hired the fishermen to be tour guides and then as soon as they had other people trained they fired all the fishermen
1: full disclosure i love to travel and this is something that i kind of internally personally in my personal life think about a lot is how where i how what I do as a tourist affects the local population. Obviously I want it to benefit them, but it's hard to tell a lot of times if what you're doing is beneficial or not. And he talks a little bit about how that local knowledge is really important and it got a lot of the fishermen these jobs, right? They can now take the people that are diving out to the spots where there's lots of fish and things like that. But then it becomes more common knowledge and anybody can do that they don't need the locals mm-hmm. anymore they can they hire somebody else them, yeah. and um then it got me I, I you know went down the rabbit hole and i was like okay well you're already talking about a small community that was overfishing, and then you're bringing in these other people that are going to need to eat in addition to everything else and um in some places where i've traveled one of the issues i've noticed is waste disposal you know, so there's so many, <laughs> I just went down the rabbit hole and, um, again, that could be a dissertation in and of itself really? is the economic impacts of, uh, cultural tourism. At this it has point. been, dissertations,
0: yeah. I'm sure.
1: Um, but I, it was a good discussion and I understand why we probably didn't go into as much depth as, um, right.
0: Yeah. There, there are a few like positive signs, like there is a, a, local boat captain association which sounds like it maybe works as kind of a union for them but ultimately i felt like this came down to probably being a lot more of a predatory relationship than than purely beneficial so anyway uh, but that's kind of my sense of it and it's not i didn't have the actual information to make that call myself of course
1: no i would love to one day sit down and just kind of do a little research on both communities and see what is happening there now and see the numbers that, you know, how many jobs are created, what, are, what is the pay of those jobs? Because a lot of times we talk about how many jobs are created, but if they're all low income jobs with, you know, no upward mobility, is that actually beneficial? Mm-hmm.
0: And how does this influx of wealthy tourists affect the local economy, economy you know, either poorly or negatively? And-,
1: and not just the economy, but also the culture. Um, you know, a lot of times you go to these smaller communities and they're selling their arts and crafts and things like that. And are they cater? You know, they sell them as like native crafts or what have you. And it makes me wonder, OK, is this something that is actually traditional to them or is this something that they've realized that the out of towners, the foreign tourists will buy?
0: Well, and this applies even in communities like in what we think of as our own culture. So if you come to like Florida, for example, there are some really teeny towns that are, are doing tourism and part of the appeal is it has the small town feel. It's small, it's close, but well, you start bringing in enough tourists and you start bringing in super, uh, mega yachts and things. And what's going to happen to that initial appeal? What's going to happen to that community that was there to start with? So these are all, all important questions to be asking. And I, again, I was just kind of frustrated because I wanted to know more, but that's not necessarily what this th- this dissertation is about either, so.
1: right? But I think it's something I'm to that's important to mention because if you are a traveler, it's you know learning to travel ethically as best you can is something that I think is beneficial both for the communities you visit, but also for you. You get a more authentic experience as a mm-hmm. tourist, and everybody. I mean, there's different types of tourists right there's the hostel person there's the resort person there's the camper so but just kind of keeping in the back of your mind how what you're doing as a tourist impacts the local community i think is really important they're not there just to serve you that's their home
0: Mm -hmm. he goes on to talk about how the fishers and tour boat industry are starting to shift their view of the ocean so we talked about how uh, the ocean kind of be seen as an endless resource and so they are starting to look at realize that it is not necessarily endless and they can't just keep doing whatever and i like one of the things that they've done that has made the biggest difference is they've actually started using mooring boys
1: that was a really interesting conversation because i scuba dive but i've never really paid much attention to when the boats moor and when they anchor Mm -hmm. (laughs) and And I was like, oh, wow!" I started thinking back on various dives I've been on. And it's just something I've never paid much attention to until this conversation, you know, talking about the challenges of managing a marine resource. Right. Fish don't stay in place. Coral grows, you know, storms happen and things like that. And just something as simple as mooring buoys can have such a huge impact.
0: And the problem with anchoring all the time especially in popular places is those anchors drop and they damage habitat uh, coral and other things and so by having an alternative especially at the most popular places where they there is like a permanent anchor essentially and they just tie themselves to those those buoys that has actually had a pretty big impact on not only the local environment but the locals have noted the difference and are i guess are actually actively asking for more of them because they've seen what a difference those, they make
1: oh so going back to just the tourism bit a little bit so we talked to, about the issues of potential neocolonialism but there is the other side where tourism actually raise, raises awareness and creates awareness about the importance of both the archaeology but also the coral reef and the local environment and things like that and how that can also have bigger impacts too. And I wish he would have gone more into this. Um, something that I've read elsewhere is, you know, when you talk about the Cata Merchant or that specific coral reef or whatever it is, that tourist learns about that site, but then they have that information and they can be aware of that when they go visit other coral reefs. Like once you learn to, when you're snorkeling, not damage the coral reef, you're gonna go snorkeling somewhere else and hopefully not damage that coral reef. So there's kind of that exponential information being passed along. And I think also, I remember I grew up in South Florida and I grew up snorkeling. There was a reef off the coast of near where I lived and you could just snorkel out to it. And of course, being in South Florida, we'd get a lot of tourists and we as locals would maybe not as nicely as we could. but we would yell at the at the tourists when they came and they started like breaking pieces off the reef and things like that we probably could have been nicer about it <laughs> but after it's something you see all the time you kind of just become short with we people. also just
0: talked about the responsibility of the tourists too so yeah, yeah
1: yeah but you know so there's that self-policing that kind of starts to happen as well the more people you educate the more people they can, in turn, educate, hopefully, nicely.
0: Yeah, so I think a key takeaway through all this conversation is that tourism isn't inherently bad, but tourism, without asking questions about what is good and what is okay and what is not, will typically have some major harmful consequences. Yeah. Would Would that sum it up pretty well?
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, humans are adaptable, uh, but you don't want to take advantage of that.
0: Yep, we move on to defining the boundaries of the site and who decides where how the boundaries are, are founded and all this stuff. I found this section a little hard to parse. I felt like some of the ideas weren't necessarily connecting very well, but I, I think what it kind of came down to was, are we talking about a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach? And so are we having a government that designates these things and manages these things and there is no local input, or are we relying on the locals to set all this up in their own best interest. The problem with doing it that way, and I think this is very fair, is that the local stuff can take a long time and you may not have that time. And in this case, they seem to feel like they didn't have time to wait for that. That seemed like it summed it up pretty well.
1: Yeah, this was a particular interest to me just because I'm involved in a local, well, a regional issue trying to develop the National Heritage Area, which is a bottom up approach and one thing that struck me when i was thinking about this is it's a lived-in environment essentially that you're trying to protect it's different when say you have an area that's a national park nobody's living there nobody currently i think that's important is living there Mm -hmm. right And nobody, people aren't necessarily utilizing that resource. It's very different when you have a lived in community or a group of communities or an already established kind of economic driver. Um, You know, this was a place where people fished and it wasn't just sitting out there in the ocean. It's hard for somebody to come in from the top down and say, hey, you guys got to do this because we say it's good for you. But then, of course, like you said, bottom up takes a lot more time as I'm learning right. <laughs> through the National Heritage Area. Right. So it's really complicated. And I think the biggest takeaway is just either way you go, whether it be bottom up or top down, you have to have that stakeholder involvement and you have to have it from the beginning.
0: Well, in the compromise they settle on in this case was they, because it's time sensitive, they do a top down with the idea of then they will develop it into a bottom up and, and kind of give, more and more power to local communities. I think there was mentioned a lot of concern that, you know, you can have that intention but without that it set up from the start, it may never happen. Seemed like maybe that is what is happening in this case, although I have a little skepticism on that too.
1: My issue with this kind of thing and I don't know that obviously I don't have a lot of in-depth knowledge of the government and how it works at the in the Dominican Republic. But say it was here in the United States where we have a lot of government turnover at every level, whether it be, you know, a basic administrator or, you know, somebody who's an elected official, their objectives change. Right. So over time, are different people that take over these various positions going to have that same goal in mind? So I think it's important. To somehow put it into writing, whether that be legislation or a local ordinance or whatever the case may be, just have it in writing so that there is a plan in place. Like by this time, we are going to have transferred so much of the management to these various organizations or so forth, whatever. Because if you just say, yep, we're going to do this thing, the thing never happens because people kind of change positions.
0: So then we talk about how do we set the boundaries for these kinds of sites? How do we monitor the site? And finally, um, how do we penalize basically for people who who break the rules or laws as the case may be? I didn't have a lot really to pull from this. It was all fairly obvious to me. I guess one of the things with this deciding the boundary was there's some debate over, should it be as large an area as possible because that's in most biodiversity as possible. You know, you couldn't do a square city block of forest. That wouldn't be a forest, you know. Or do you do as small as possible to try and impact the local use of it as little as possible? And in this case, they they went with uh, as small likely as small areas they could do, just to try and make sure they're continuing to foster that. I think goodwill is mostly the concern there. Um, did you have any other thoughts? We talked about how this is going to rely on on locals helping to monitor the site. um
1: I feel like in some Parts, he gets maybe a little bit idealistic. There was one quote I really liked how the human past is not owned by anybody and represents everybody. I was like, okay, that's a cool quote.
0: And well, that's a nice ideal. It's something that we as archaeologists fully understand, but it doesn't necessarily have the people view it, I guess I
1: could say. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, it was just, yeah, it's very idealistic. um Another, <laughs> there was one quote that kind of bothered me and it's on I think page 174. Archaeology puts all human societies on equal footing. And I was like, yeah, in theory, again, kind of idealistic, but I think it's important to point out good archaeology versus not so good archaeology. Archaeology has been used in the past to push racist and, you know, very harmful ideologies and as well as like what we see a lot today, those pseudo pseudo scientific and conspiracy theories so again some parts of this book to me kind of felt and again it is a dissertation so this makes sense but very like idealistic academic not real worldly Mm
0: -hmm. and i feel like every thesis or dissertation has chapters or sections where the author wrote because they had to, not because they wanted to.
1: That's very true. And I
0: I wonder if that's what we're in right here, because there's a, like we said, this could be a lot bigger chunk of this because there's a lot of stuff that isn't really talked about in as much detail as I wanted to see.
1: Yeah. And actually it would be really interesting to see if anybody has taken up sections of this dissertation and, and parse them out and done their own research or their own dissertation or thesis on that specific topic like the management of the resources and stuff but yeah you're probably right I know my master's thesis has things in it that I would love to cut out
0: I didn't want to write my history chapter
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just
0: wanted to talk about the the interpretation
1: right yep yeah so, yes so you're, yep, you're right I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that yep. one.
0: We, I think, this is the last section uh, we're going to talk about uh, development of the Cata Merchant as a marine preservation area. And so, this is building the actual interpretation, and this is the stuff that Barbara and I really like. And and so, we're gonna kind of uh, we're gonna, talk gonna nerd about out. This. We're gonna nerd out a we're little bit. Nerd yes. Out. So be prepared. So he d- identifies ten steps towards making it a marine preservation area or MPA. And I feel like for me, this was very glossed over um, because steps one through four basically happen in two sentences each. And so like proposing it to governmental bodies, that had to be a big effort. And who do you talk to and what their response is like? You know, I had all these questions, establishing the park boundaries. How was, who decided that? And how did, you know, where was the push and pull in that? And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I, I can imagine. <laughs> also, I I, you know stakeholder involvement is not a, a quick process even with the meetings even if you only have one meeting and you make your decision you're going to get a lot of different points of view and there's going to be conflict and push and pull and how do you meet some of those needs and how do you uh come to some compromises you know these are all things that i i wanted to see
1: I- so so, you know we're so used to public meetings here in the states and you know they have to be noticed so far in advance and they have to be held in an ada accessible area i was actually and i know this is super dorky of me but i was it got me wondering like okay how what is that stakeholder process like in the dominican republic like what are the requirements and things like that and i know our general reader, they're probably their eyes are probably glazing over just listening to me talk about that. But that's something I was interested in, and I wanted to know more about. So, but that's just me.
0: So, was it very different from the way we, or did you just want to do it and you didn't, you didn't find out?
1: I I didn't look into okay, it. Okay. I, I've gone down so many rabbit holes with this <laughs> book. <I've> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, so. I got a little unclear because some of the steps in the 10-step process seemed like they hadn't happened yet. Like six and seven all of a sudden switch to they will happen. So that is creating land-based interpretation and publish brochure or materials. But then a land-based interpretation did happen.
1: Yeah, I was a little bit confused and maybe it just had to do with the facts of how long it took to write the dissertation. I don't maybe. know. But yeah, because Mm -hmm. he talks about in his uh, timeline there at the end, um, when he's like finalizing the chronology, there's um, several museums that have exhibits about the shipwreck. I think uh, the Museum of London and then the Children's Museum of Indianapolis as well. And I think there's Mm -hmm. a few others. So, yeah, there's things that have happened. There was also something. Yeah. okay. So he talks about in may of 2011 there was at the on the 310th anniversary of kids hanging the site of the cata merchants was officially (laughs) inaugurated as the marine protected area in london yeah i just thought it was funny (laughs) that it was on the anniversary of his hanging (laughs) seems a little unfortunate but interesting interesting choice
0: yeah yeah and i would would have liked to hear more about you know the interpretation and. And the materials and that were produced, how was it interpreted? And
1: something I also, so this, there wasn't any mention of any web based interpretation, mm. which I if think. you did a photogrammetry. Yeah, where is model, all that stuff? That would be good to um, use. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been interested to see how, because we rely so heavily on that today. Mm hmm. I would, you know, are there videos of the shipwreck online that I can watch if I am not a scuba diver or a right. snorkeler, that kind of thing.
0: And in a related way, I am glad that they thought to do a terrestrial interpretation because not everybody scuba dives. And, well, and it's good for them to try and make it as accessible as many people as possible. Internet, of course, is a good way of doing that. But having a, a museum exhibit in La Romana or whatever is also a really good way of increasing the accessibility of the site.
1: Even landlubbers deserve a chance to learn about the Cata merchants. We
0: like shipwrecks too. <laughs> Just from dry land.
1: Nothing wrong with
0: that. Yeah. But then again, we switch back to some things have happened, like a dedication ceremony happened. The plaque has been put into place, a uh, plaque at the site, but there's also a replica plaque and a replica cannon somewhere.
1: One thing I did notice is the photo, the plaque is in Spanish, which makes sense, but it got me thinking about, language accessibility you you know this is a tourist community uh is the plaque accessible to people who maybe don't speak that language uh i was just curious i'm sure somewhere somehow it is but i would just be interested in what form that takes
0: yeah and 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 we don't need to harp on about you know what details we wanted to see but there's some things too like so they wanted to put in some systems for reporting problems at the site or the, the condition of the site and essentially all all we get as the reader is some locals have reported and i'm like well how how many that could be one person's done it once during their training has the you know is i want to know what is the activity here if, yeah. if maybe it's too early to say but we, i wish we could say that even if that was the case you know
1: yeah And one thing i've noticed with monitoring sites is it's really important for there to be some consistent way to note changes and things like that and i know he mentions project aware that has you know established some monitoring programs elsewhere and we have a monitoring program here in florida and one thing that we have found is consistency in data is really important right so I would be interested, like, yeah, saying, okay, the site's monitored is one thing, but saying that the data can actually be used to help manage this shipwreck in this marine protected zone is a completely different thing.
0: Right. But even just getting people to do it again, like I know we do trainings, uh, FPAN and not me specifically, do trainings with divers on how to record shipwrecks. But I think the number of people who've actually followed up and, and then done this on their own, especially more than once, hasn't been very many. And so I kind of just wonder is is this and and maybe it is very robust. I just there's no indication in here and that kind of something I wanted to see once again. And so that kind of wraps up everything, I think, leaves us at a pretty good place. Uh we there is a short conclusion. There isn't much I wanted to to highlight. In the conclusion except there is one thing that again kind of bothered me a little bit and that is the whole start of the dissertation seemed to be about how this shipwreck is a part of a big system and the big system informs the shipwreck and the shipwreck affects the big system and we're going to uh, look at that and how pirates lived and all these all these big ideas and then we we never get that
1: yeah i was a little Unsatisfied, yeah, that as well.
0: Again, remembering this is a dissertation, you have to work with what your site will give you, and you need to talk about the potential for these things. But then I wanted to see a, so here's here's why we couldn't do these things that we were wanting to do.
1: Yeah, you can't make a big claim at the beginning and then not follow up. You
0: got to finish off the threads, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. But all in all, I learned a lot by reading this book, and even though uh, we're we're being a little harsh on it on this section where we we know a lot more what's going on, we we enjoyed it. We enjoyed talking about it, and we hope you enjoyed it too.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a good book. I I would definitely take our recommendations and kind of skim over some of the theoretical things. uh, Make it your own. (laughs) We're we're not testing you on this. Yes,
0: and check it out unless you really, really want to own it for some reason. It's better. It's a very pricey book on top of all this. I would recommend checking it out again unless you happen to be a really big into the pirate stuff.
1: Yes, support your local library, guys. Yes,
0: yes, if not your local bookstore. (laughs) Okay, so that is the end of Captain Kidd's Lost Ship, The Wreck of the Cata Merchant. And I think that we're at a good time for stopping. A little long, maybe still, but I think we're at a good place.
1: We want to talk about what our next book is. I really, really
0: do, because I'm kind of excited about this one. Me too. So our next book comes to us from someone who is not an archaeologist, who really is enthusiastic about it, and that is my dad. He read it without me prompting and he got really excited about it, told me about it multiple times. And he's really excited that we are going to be reading this book coming up next. And that is Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. And so this book is all about archeological cities, ancient cities and kind of their rise and their, their peak economically, socially, culturally, and then their decline and why they declined, but not, I think importantly, not disappeared, at least in the most cases, because we think of a lot of these civilizations have, have disappeared and no, their descendants and the civilizations, people didn't just disappear. They're still around. It's just, it isn't uh, the city isn't operating at the same level it once was. There are four cities that we focus on for this book, Hayuk, Pompeii, Angkor, in cahokia and so these are a good mix of cities from all around the world i'm looking forward to some of these i know a fair bit about i'm sure there's still plenty to learn and a couple of them i know nothing about so that's going to be a lot of fun i'm
1: very excited about this
0: yeah and i think what we're going to do is we're going to do one city at a time that'll give us a little more breathing room on reading it and recording these. Because, it allow yeah.
1: What Tristan's trying to say it's it's going to allow us to nerd out a little more. Definitely. Because we're going to have a lot to say about, especially some of these cities, but I'm betting right. all of them once we start reading and learning about them.
0: So for this next one, we're going to read Kettle Hayuk and that'll be about 60 pages, 59 pages, I think, introduction and that first city. And so we will look forward to doing that. And I think that wraps it
1: Oh, I think so. I'm really excited. Yep. Can't wait for this next book. So we'll
0: see you all next time.
1: All right. See you later.
0: Archaeology Books for Fun is brought to you by the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a program of the University of West Florida. You can find out more about archaeology and about FPAN at fpan.us. We appreciate any feedback, so if you're listening to us as a podcast, please leave us a review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.